1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Professor Alicia Rankin, the author of The Poison Trials. In 1524, Pope Clement VII gave two condemned criminals to his physician to test a promising new antidote. After each convict ate a marzipan cake poisoned with deadly aconite, one of them received the antidote and lived. The other died in agony. In 16th century Europe, this and more than a dozen other accounts of poison trials were committed to writing. Alicia Rankin tells their little-known story. At a time when poison was widely feared, the urgent need for effective cures provoked intense excitement about new drugs. As doctors created, performed, and evaluated poison trials, they devoted careful attention to method, wrote detailed experimental reports, and engaged with the problem of using human subjects for fatal tests. In reconstructing this history, Rankin reveals how the antidote trials generated extensive engagement with, uh, with experimental thinking, long before the great experimental boom of the 17th century, and investigates how competition with lower-class healers spurred on this trend. The poison trials sheds welcome and timely light on the intertwined nature of medical innovations, professional rivalries, and political power. Well, Alicia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. All right. So as we're living through the unprecedented uh, times during the pandemic, where things are starting to look a little bit better uh, in uh, March of 2021, I would like to ask, um, how has pandemic influenced you and your work? Oh,
0: (laughs) I could spend the (laughs) entire interview talking about that. Um, Well, everything closed down for us. Last year on March 13th, around about. And that was the day I got the copy edits for this book we'll be talking about today, which is really the last time you have to make substantial changes to the book. And all of a sudden, we're in the middle of this crazy pandemic time. It was my kids were both home from school, working virtually, didn't have much support. So I was kind of teaching. Um, third grade and fifth grade, in addition to trying to do my own work. Um, So it was a really, it's been a very difficult um, past year, I have to say. And it's been difficult for anyone who works primarily in archives because we just have not been able to travel um, to do additional work. Um, But particularly for this book, it was a very interesting time to be doing the very final stages on a book about um, medical care in the middle of a pandemic.
1: Interesting, so have you been able to do work remotely or do you have to be present on site?
0: I am teaching in person, although that was my choice. I was given the option to teach either in person or um, virtually, but they've taken a lot of precautions and they're testing students um, every other day here at Tufts. So. I felt safe enough to teach in person. Um, but I've been having every class, has been basically some students in the classroom and some online because we have a lot of students who are opted to be virtual this year. And also some who got tested, tested positive, are in isolation, or whose friends tested positive, are in quarantine. Um, so it's the big juggling ball where I'm kind of doing everything, wearing all hats at once. Um, But, you know, this semester, it feels much easier to do that than it did last semester. So you live and
1: learn. Mm. Did you pick up any uh, useful skills uh, to be able to cope with some of the aspects?
0: Oh, definitely. First of all, lowering my expectations of everyone, Mm. myself, my students, my kids. And also I've adopted a policy of maximum flexibility and particularly in dealing with my Students, because you know they're just having curveballs thrown at them. My hard and fast deadlines just uh, seem cruel in some ways. Um, so you know, I've started to tell them you need to do your work, but you think there's no path on not getting your work done. But if you need to not turn it in on the deadline but have a few extra days, you know, we can we can talk about it. So, um, so definitely that has been something that's probably a policy I'll keep even beyond the pandemic because I think it works well for everyone. Um, and, you know, also just remembering to go outside and take walks a lot for a while. That was the literally the only thing we could do to leave our houses, how important it is to get out and get some exercise. That's been my other big um, comfort during this time.
1: It's yes, really um, uh, nice to hear that, you know, because there was a sentiment going that it's a pandemic and not a productivity contest. And perhaps uh, in academia, we felt it might be slightly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, my productivity has plummeted. I will say (laughs) I've been constantly (laughs) behind on deadlines Um, and, you know, I will, I have the hope that eventually I can, you know, clawing myself back on, on that. But, um, but I think that, This is something that all academics are facing, especially those of us who have kids at home who who needed help. There's just no way I could wear every hat. So something had to give. I was um, very grateful to have this book to work on. Um, I had the copy edits in May and then the page proofs, which is the very last step, um, came in August. And, you know, those were things I had to do, or the book wasn't coming out. So it really forced me to just make time for myself um, to do research that otherwise wouldn't have gotten done. But otherwise, you know, it's quite difficult. I'm hoping I'll be able to travel again. I'm looking forward to getting back into the archives. Um, but for now, we take what we can, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. All right. So can you tell us a little bit more about your, uh, about yourself and your background?
0: Yeah, so um, I was born in Pennsylvania, in the Philadelphia area, and I went to a public high school. Um, And then I went to college at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, uh, which is not too far from Boston, where I am now, or Somerville, Massachusetts, where I am now. And um, when I was in college, my senior year, I took a seminar with Catherine Park, who taught a seminar on the female body in medieval and Renaissance medicine. And I had never heard of medieval medicine before and knew nothing about it. Um, But Katie Park is a marvelous teacher. The material was fascinating. And that's where I fell in love with medieval and early modern medicine. Um, When I, I spent some time in Germany after my undergraduate time and eventually decided I wanted to go back to do a PhD in history. And at that point, the same professor um, had moved to Harvard and was taking a PhD students there. So um, I ended up being accepted there as her student, um, which was wonderful. She's been an amazing mentor my entire career. She's still one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. Um, So I kind of Came to the topic by accident and just completely fell in love with it. Found it so fascinating.
1: That's great. And do you have any uh, advice uh, for the young uh, career researchers and listeners on the, on that uh, uh, theme?
0: Yeah, um, I think this is probably not something that PhD advisors want to hear. But for me, <laughs> I think like going down rabbit holes that you don't expect that kind of suck you away from the topic you're supposed to be working on, for me was so beneficial, just like finding little things um, that interest you. Of course, when you're doing research in archives, you just don't know what you'll find and you don't always find the things you expect and you don't always expect the things that you find. Um, But I found, I mean, this book, which we can, I can talk more about that in a minute, but this book, wouldn't have happened without just following a rabbit hole that I wasn't expecting to, to go down. So just things that you suddenly find interesting that you want to learn more about, just chase them sometimes. Not always, you want to stay on task for the most part, but, um, but, but chasing little unexpected um, items that pop up is I think one of, for me, one of the most exciting things about doing historical research.
1: It's really refreshing to hear. So can you tell me how you came to writing uh, this book? Yes,
0: so this was a big rabbit hole, I will say. Um, (laughs) So I was finishing up my first book, um, which is on noble women who were healers in early modern Germany. And um, I was doing research at a small archive in Southwestern Germany, in a little tiny town called Neuenstein. The town only has about 6,000 people in it, but it has a beautiful Renaissance castle because it was the seat of a count, or count house in in Renaissance Germany. And I was just looking at uh, books of medicinal remedies, which was one of the big source bases I used for my first book. Um, So they had several by women at this, Archive, and I was just kind of doing my work, and the archivist came to me and said, Oh, if you're interested in early modern medicine, you might want to take a look at this source. It's a file about a condemned criminal who was used for a test of poison. And I thought, Oh, that sounds really interesting. Um, So I grabbed the file and I looked through it, and it was so fascinating. It was the basis of what is now chapter four of my book. Um, So I thought that immediately, it just seemed so interesting. I knew it was the the beginning of something, but I thought it was just a chapter of a larger book about German pharmacy that I thought I was writing. Um, But I talked to some colleagues, including my PhD advisor, Katie Park, and also uh, another historian, Bruce Moran, and they both Noted that I should look at other places because they had seen similar tests using condemned criminals and other contexts, and that one thing led to another, and I realized this was a much larger phenomenon than just this one trial in this tiny archive in in Germany. Um, so it kind of led me down this road I never really expected to be. And um, I remember the moment that I realized that these tests were going to be at the center of the book I was writing. I was like, oh, this is what this book is about. Um, it was kind of exciting.
1: This is fascinating. The whole the whole topic, and I've got I've got, a, I've got a question, but it's perhaps a little bit off topic. But sure, are you familiar with the Voynich manuscript? Yes. So, yes. can you give us your perspective?
0: <laughs> no one will ever figure out the Voynich manuscript. Is my perspective. <laughs> There's been so many hey. attempts. Yeah, I think so. There's been so many attempts, and. Um, you know, I don't. I haven't seen anyone that that is. Um, you know, I think will lead to success. I'll be surprised. I'll say. I, I'm always open to being wrong, but um, but it's. I think each each time someone thinks they've solved it, then it's come. It comes up as no, nope, probably not. So, um, but we'll see. I'm not. I'm certainly not an expert in that area. So.
1: Yeah, but uh, still, it's good to, to hear. Perspective for the qualified professional <laughs> that, in that area. Yes. <laughs> so before uh, before we dive in uh, uh, to the poison trials themselves, can I just set up the scene of life of this time period that you describe?
0: Yes. Um, yeah. I mean that again. I could go on for a whole hour. On, um, it, it's a very stratified society and still very much a very rural society. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, a
0: lot of the events I'm talking about take place in urban contexts, but it's still very agrarian society. So most of the people live in the countryside. There are strong urban centers, there are universities, um, but the people who can read, represent literacy rates, have really Still quite low, although rising at the time. So it was estimated in the Middle Ages, probably something around 5% maybe of Europe was literate. And at this point, you know, it was probably maybe double that. Um, And in in urban centers, probably even higher. Like some places like Florence had very high literacy rates, but probably not over 20% in in any place, any city. So it's very um, stratified in terms of who is literate and who is not um the rural you know agrarian people are very you know subside on the land and um there is a lot of migration between cities both for educational purposes so people coming to study at universities and big university centers um, but also for work so um if there's a drought in the countryside. There is often an influx of people into the cities, or just you know regular um, people moving from city to city to do odd tasks. Um, so, in some sense, it's a very static society in that most people throughout their lives stay in the place they're born. At the same time, there is quite a lot of movement throughout Europe. Um, it's there. I don't know if there's anything else you want to hear.
1: Yeah, that's great. So, so we know exactly yeah. in which uh, uh, what sort of scene there is. So, what are the poison trials?
0: So, the poison trials are just a term I have given to a kind of test in which a test subject, sometimes, often an animal, um, occasionally, as I describe in this book, a human, is given a poison deliberately in order to test an antidote to poison. Um, So. This is, in these cases that I'm describing in my book, it's not about testing the poison itself to see how the poison affects the body, although, um, as I will describe more, that was definitely an interest, but the goal is stated to test an antidote to see if the antidote works. And that was important because um, poison was a great concern at the time, both because Malicious poisoning um, was viewed as rampant. How rampant it actually was is a bit of a question, but um, it was viewed as a huge problem, especially in court culture where a lot of the events of this book take place. Um, you know, Renaissance princes were constantly t- attempting to poison each other, even if they weren't mm. successful. Um, but also poison was viewed as a cause of disease and particularly epidemic diseases and particularly plague. So poison and plague had been tied together closely ever since the 14th century when um, the plague pandemic spread across Europe. Um, Because so many people were dying so quickly, the um, time between disease onset and death was so fast, it resembled poisoning. So there was a close tie between um, disease and poison from that point, often um, remedies for poison were used as remedies for plague. So it was thought that if you had a remedy, a new remedy for poison that was proven to be successful, it could both protect a prince from poisoning and also protect his people from plague. So it was really seen as a boon if you could have something that was um, proven to be
1: effective. So, so during so in this the- time, did, sorry, uh, did the aristocracy have uh, people who tasted their food, for example?
0: Exactly, yeah, this is um, Mm. something that dates back into the, well, into the Middle Ages, and even before, I mean, there's um, longstanding history of food testers in um, court, in the court setting. Um, Actually, the Italian word credenza comes from the word credence, which is the ceremony that was performed before a meal, in order to make sure that the food was not poisoned. And um, so poison itself, and that actually is, is something I bring up in the book, poison itself was viewed as something that you could test going back long periods of time, um, back to antiquity. There are um, many cases in which poison is is used in a variety of different kinds of tests, um, not just to see if an antidote works, but also, um, testing to see if poison is present. So there was this idea, uh, particularly in the Middle Ages, that um, there were certain objects that would change their look in the presence of poison and that you could use those to test poison in in food, for example. That Certain stones would start sweating um, when coming close to poison in in food or drink. So there was this idea that poison was connected to a kind of testing um, that dated back a really long time before uh, the events I describe in this book. But the um, my book is arguing that there was, in fact, a scholarly history of poison testing um, in, involving antidotes that uh, the Greek physician Galen, who was the medical authority for early modern Europe. So we all know Hippocrates today. Um Galen was actually far better known than Hippocrates in the 16th century, when the majority of of this book takes place. Um, And Galen wrote many works, but one um, theme in his works that crops up a lot is praise of a particular drug called seriac, which was an antidote to poison primarily, but also used as a remedy for a variety of different diseases. It was basically a panacea. And Galen mentions in his writings that, um, first of all, in times before his and more ancient times, um, condemned criminals were used to test antidotes to poison. Um, But he notes that was no longer possible in his own day, it had become taboo. Mm -hmm. And there is a work attributed to Galen called On Theriac to Piso which um, it's still not clear if Galen wrote it or not. But the latest thinking is that it was one of his students. So it was not Galen himself. But in this work, uh, which was very well known um, in you know, various different times after. So it went to um, the Islamic empire and was, was taken into Arabic writings and then came back into Western Europe um, in the later Middle Ages but this work on Theriac to Piso includes a segment that describes a test of Theriac on roosters um, who would be split into two groups and um, you would give Theriac to one group and none to the other, and then give poisonous beasts, but poisonous beasts among them and let them bite the roosters. And he says that the ones who have drunk Theriac will live and the ones who have not drunk Theriac will die. So he sets up this, um, example of what I'm calling a poison trial in um, animals. This exact example appears in a number of Arabic texts, most importantly, um, the work of the um, Arabic physician, Ibn Sina or Avicenna as he was known to Europeans. And then Avicenna's works were read by Western Europeans um, avidly. So you see this exact kind of test pop up in some writings in the middle ages, but it's always about testing theriac on animals. And what my book describes is this shift from testing um, a particular poison antidote theriac on animals to testing a variety of poison antidotes on humans, always condemned criminals if if you're going to use humans, in order to see if some other antidotes, not just theriac, are effective. So the main Point of the tests I'm describing in this book is to test new antidotes um, and to discover if they're effective. The main purpose of these theriac tests described in the Middle Ages was usually to see if the particular batch of theriac you had was effective. So I'm we're kind of shifting from efficacy, from um, authenticity to efficacy in the trials I'm describing in this book. And the larger point is that. These are un- somewhat unusual cases of um, contrived trials, so experiments that are, you know, deliberately developed and conducted um, ahead of time. The word experiment was um, very malleous at this time, so valuable at this time. The It didn't mean an experiment like we think of it today. It just meant a uh, you know, a thing that you could view that had happened. Um, It didn't always have a larger meaning. And I'm arguing that this Mm. kind of test that they're doing, they're doing it because they think it does have a larger meaning. So it's like an early inkling of an experimental culture that was was developing in many different um, areas at this time. It's not just these poison trials. Um, But it's emblematic of a new interest in using these kinds of contrived tests to draw larger meaning out of uh, medical texts and and we know of early early experiments are particularly well known in the in um, the mathematical sciences, particularly Galileo's experiments, you know, a few decades after the events I'm describing here, but I'm arguing here that medicine is crucial to the development of early experimental thinking.
1: So, what role did uh, the spread of literacy and record keeping play in uh, in this uh, case?
0: Yeah, so um, it was really important. And it's one thing that sets this mm. aside from some other kinds of tests on poison that were taking place at this time. Um, because, uh, so in um, the early modern medical marketplace. There were many people selling different kinds of drugs and antidotes. Um, and it was really common to have these kind of open air drug, drug markets and in marketplaces and, um, people would hawk all kinds of different potions. And, um, one, one very common kind of marketplace drug sale was uh, antidotes that were meant to be used against poison. Um, and so you'd have people doing demonstrations of poison or in which they would either poison animals and open air shows. And these were dramatic shows that were meant to entertain as well as to sell their wares. But also um, sometimes they would poison themselves and then, you know, or, or seem to poison themselves and and then take the antidote and seem to be cured. Uh, so this was a kind of poison test that was well known. It was something that. Um, was, was done orally you know, was done in kind of in person. And the physicians who are conducting these poison trials. Um, so my book documents um, physicians who are at princely courts um, who have been given permission by a prince to use a criminal condemned to death to test poison. And these physicians do not want to appear like these marketplace charlatans. They want to appear to be doing something different. So a really important part of that is documentation. So they're Mm. um, keeping careful notes about what is happening to these poor, poor men who are, they're all men, who are um, given poison and an antidote. And they're describing it in a manner that was very consistent with the common theory of the four humors um, that they all would have learned at university. So it's um, the documentation side of things is what um, makes this, uh, you know, something that's different from these charlatans marketplace shows. Um, I should say that these, these poison trials were not extremely common. I mean, they, I have about a dozen cases that I have that have sort of longer descriptions. And then there's allusions to many, many more beyond that. Um, Just, you know, a a phrase that says, you know, I tested it on a condemned criminal or suggesting that you tested it on a condemned criminal, but it Mm -hmm. wasn't like, it wasn't like a genre that completely took over Europe or that there was a group of physicians who were, um, you know, Actually, there was a group of physicians working on these, which I can talk about in a minute, but it was not something that became extremely common, but it popped up commonly enough that it clearly became an extensive interest and trend, um, particularly um, in the time period between 1524 and the later 1560s. So you see quite quite a few of these pop up and it's a way for them to explore the um, workings of both both poison and antidotes to poison in a way that makes sense to them in terms of the medical theory that they've been steeped in. Um, And also that, and and by putting it in terms that like writing it down and putting it in these, these terms that they understand, it also separates them from these, these marketplace charlatans who are just doing kind of quick one-off tests for For pleasure and and to sell their wares rather than to answer a particular question, which is what what these guys are trying to do.
1: Did alchemists play any role in uh, the derivation of these uh, antidotes? Yes,
0: that's an important subtopic in this book. Um, A lot of the antidotes that are tested, so the antidotes that they test tend to come in kind of three big categories. One category are exotic substances that are, come from you know, afar um, and are very expensive and, and precious, and therefore there's an interest in testing them. The second one is substances that were uh, created by prince, other princes. So there's a couple examples of testing princely entities that actually the princes themselves came up with. And then the third subgenre are Antidotes Created by Local Alchemists. Um, mm. So the, um, the and, and even some of the learned physicians who are prominent in my book. So the biggest example there is the Italian physician, Pietro Andrea Mattioli, who is a crucial figure throughout my book um, because he really popular, or he really spread the idea of poison trials to a latin reading public across europe by putting a description of one in his uh, in his book which became a bestseller he wrote a commentary on the greek physician Dioscorides that became one of the best-selling medical books in the 16th century it was translated into latin importantly but also many other languages and Mattioli included a description of, um, a poison trial, uh, that took place in Rome, which I haven't talked about yet, but I probably should, um, in this, in, in, in this book. Um, and Mattioli himself, um, really made a explicit division between the kind of poison trial he was describing and the kind of poison trial that charlatans did. He has a huge section of his, of, one of his um, parts of his book is actually on poisons, and he has a, an enormous um, kind of two or three page rant against charlatans and all the tricks they use <laughs> to deceive people in the marketplace, and and you know, how deceptive and deceitful they are. And he, he uses the deceit the word deceit in like five different ways about you know every other sentence. Um, but then he follows this rant with a recipe for his own oil of scorpions. So it's his own, he calls it scorpion oil. It's his own um, <laughs> remedy that he says is well tested. Um, and it's an alchemical remedy. So he's distilling, he's using alchemical methods to, to make it. And um, he says that we know this is true because it has been tested in a poison trial. So he's, he's sort of validating this idea of testing in a poison trial, but not the kind that the charlatans are using. In the marketplace, the the right kind, the kind that physicians are doing in conjunction with their princely patrons. So he's he's really sort of central in developing this idea of a scholarly experiment. The, the poison trial is a scholarly experiment.
1: Were there any known cases of self experimentation with antidotes?
0: Um, well, yes. Um, there, I mean, there's self experimentation. In general, is a, a huge thing at this time period, um, but there's a, I mean, there's a mm. famous, famous example from um, ancient, the ancient world. The king Mithridates the sixth uh, of Pontos, was famous in trying to develop antidotes to poison, and he did so by taking small quantities of poison, and then not, not enough to kill him, but enough to sort of make him feel it, and then. Um, trying different antidotes on it and different mixtures. And it, the legend is that through this trial and error, he um, came up with an antidote called, that was named after him called Mithridatium. Um, that was an excellent antidote to poisons. But he he also was known to have tested antidotes on condemned criminals. So he also used condemned criminals for his testing, but he's most famous for have self-tested um, and, and then provided an example. So he became a famous example. That was repeated in many, many different sources after him. And um, other physicians sort of followed suit. I haven't found a lot of um, descriptions of specific um, kinds of self-testing with poison, but I did find a really fascinating one um, from the 1300s. A physician named Guido da Vigevano, who was an Italian working at the court of King Philip IV of France, and he decided to try to create a antidote to poison um, based on he had read about worms that would eat the roots of a poisonous aconite called Nepellus. And he decided he, these worms might make a good antidote. So he dug up the plants, um, he took the worms, he turned it into what he called a theriac. So he t- turned it into this, he ground up the antidote. And the recipe is basically like, honey, um, some herbs and like 24 worms. <laughs> and then he ground them up <laughs> and, then he, and then he, he first tested them on animals and he said that worked fine. So then he tested it on himself and then he kept throwing up, but he survived. Um, so he said that this antidote was, um, it's unclear how much it just made you throw up the poison and how much it actually counteracted the poison, but that it definitely worked. Um, so he included the recipe in um, his, this treatise that he wrote for the king um, as you know a, as a good antidote to poison. So that that's the one concrete example of self-testing that I saw. Um, but you know, I'm sure there was other examples going on that, that just didn't come to the fore. It was more about tests because you know they, they recognized that it was harmful to take poisonous substances. so they, that's why they were mm. using, um, condemned criminals because the condemned criminals already were condemned to die so they they had a kind of special status where it was easier to use them as, as test subjects
1: so can you describe the first known poison trial the very first in the beginning
0: yeah yeah so the, my my um book begins in rome in 1524 and it describes the a test of a oil that i've described as Caravita's oil. It was created Mm -hmm. by a surgeon named Gregorio Caravita. Um, And Caravita was known to have used this oil to great effect during a plague epidemic in 1523. And then he was asked if it was good for anything else. And he said it was a good antidote to all poison. So um, the physicians to Pope Clement VII brought him in front of Pope Clement and said, this man says he has an antidote to all poison. And you might expect that Pope Clement would say, "Okay, thank you, go away." Um, but actually, he was said that, "Okay, let's try it out. Let's test it." And so he granted two condemned criminals to his personal physician, Paolo Giovio. And Paolo Giovio is a very famous humanist and known best known as a historian, but he was also a physician and was um, put in charge of this particular case. Um, and Giovio. In conjunction with the court apothecary, the pharmacist um, whose name was Tommaso Biliote, and also the Roman senator who was in charge of um, the legal courts in Rome, whose name was Pietro Borghese, the three of these men together um, conducted a trial on these two condemned criminals in which they gave them, again, this herb, Aconitum napellus, or the aconite called napellus, and as the poison. And then they Both men were clearly affected by the poison. They started to gesticulate and it's described how they, um, you know, are are really um, experiencing excruciating symptoms. And so then one of the criminals um, is given the antidote and the other criminal is just left to die. He's described as the more savage of the two. So he's seen as okay to just let him die. And that was actually intellectually, although you know, morally, that's terrible. Um, intellectually, it was seen you know, as important to show that the poison would have killed the other man if he had not been given the antidote. Um, so this test was appears first in a letter by um, a local agent from Mantua who had heard about it and was astounded by it and wrote back to his patron. But it was also published. So the three testers actually published an account of this trial. It's just a four-page pamphlet in Latin um, just a couple of weeks after it took place. And they described it as a great success. They described it in excruciating detail. So they explained you know, how they got the poison. Um, it came from the Apennine Mountains, they said. And it was made into little marzipan cakes so that the um, two men would not notice it. And their symptoms are described in detail and the recovery is described in detail. So they're, they're not trying to hide the fact that, that they did this. And interestingly, considering that they were um, physicians to the, they're working for the Pope. They did not describe this as a miracle. They described it as a a medical success, not a, you know, religious Hmm. success. So this was that and it was something that had medical meaning. So once this test um was completed, they wanted to try this oil on another poison. So then they um were granted a third condemned criminal, this time someone who was described as a murderer um, from Mantua, and he was given arsenic, followed by the antidote, and he also survived. Um, so. The combination of these two tests was seen as a marker of the success of this particular oil. Um, it's described that Caravita himself earned a hefty sum of money as a reward for uh, coming up with this oil. And it, was, uh, it became kind of the first test that appears in other sources. And, and it became so this was described locally. It, it appeared in a couple of letters. But um, it became of wider spread knowledge when Mattioli, who was present for this test, um, the physician I mentioned earlier, included it in his um, best selling book. So Mattioli was at the time a student of Caravitas and um, was apparently present or he claims to have been present for this test. Um, and then he, he included a not quite as detailed account, but a, a short account in his book and once that was published, people read it, and the idea of doing this kind of thing um, began to spread more widely.
1: So how did poison trials start uh, getting integrated into the law system in early Europe, or maybe used within the law system?
0: <laughs> well, it's interesting because they actually circumvent the law system in a way, uh, <laughs> because these, these criminals are supposed to be executed in public executions. Um, So the system, the law system is expecting that they kind of are tried, they're condemned and then they're executed. This was an important, both important um, religious and also an important cultural ritual at the time. And poison trials are circumventing this ritual. They're pulling them out of this normal process of execution. So there are a couple of really important things that had to happen to make it permissible even for princes to use condemned criminals. Um, so there, I, I make this argument in chapter two of my book. The um, in the case of Caravita's oil, they really make an attempt to show that there is regular procedure being followed in this trial in terms of um, doing a poison trial in the same way you might do an anatomical dissection, uh, because. in in the practice of anatomical dissection at the time, the bodies of condemned criminals were usually used because no one wanted their dead loved ones dissected. So usually condemned criminals were um, often foreign and their bodies were usually used for, for anatomical demonstrations for public dissections. Um, And there was a established procedure on how to use these bodies. Um, Mm. You had to get, Permission for, in Rome at least you had to get permission from the Pope or or a papal legate and you had to a Roman senator or governor had to be involved um, and all of so all of these steps were followed very clearly at this poison trial that the the senator Pietro Borghese was there and it was done on the command of Pope Clement the seventh so these steps that would have been done for anatomy was done for this living criminal who they were te- using for a test um, they also Made sure that they emphasized that the proper religious procedure was followed. So it was common at the time for um, condemned criminals to be accompanied to death by a confraternity of lay people who were there basically to help the um, criminal be in the right way with God until his death. Um, The thought was that the um, condemned criminal, if the condemned criminal died um, in a good state, the violence and suddenness of his death would get him some time off purgatory or sometimes even skip purgatory uh, in general. It would help him get to heaven basically in some way, even despite his terrible crimes that had caused him to be condemned to death. So um, they would you know, be present at um, the, before and during an execution, these confraternity would be present. And it's described that they're there before these men are taken for this poison trial it's described how this confraternity is is there and they're helping them. So these steps that normally would occur um, in a regular execution and a regular dissection are being followed, and, and they're trying to make it clear that they're not trying to step out of the boundaries. Um, in a later chapter, I also described how the... Um, there's sort of an, another step that starts to become common in which the criminals are um, have to show that they consented to the test. So in this first test, the two criminals, uh, the, two, the two prisoners apparently were tricked into this. They don't, there's no, there, it seems that they don't know that they're being given poison. Um, they know that the executioner is being sent away and, and that makes them happy. Um, but then they're given the substance and, the, and they're not told as far as I can tell that it's poison. Um, but in later tests, particularly in the German-speaking areas, uh, they have to be shown to give their consent. So it's always mentioned in, in those later tests that they consented. They said they would rather die of poison in prison than they would publicly. Um, and they are also usually um, – so there's this kind of strange sort of an informed consent happening. And it's also emphasized that these trials – and this is true of all poison trials – that they took place for the public benefit. That it's not just, you know, for the for the glory of the prince. That this is something that could be used more widely, and it's usually described as would benefit all of Christendom. Um, so there's some justifications that are less legal. To so go back to your original question, there's justifications that aren't so much legal as they are moral and religious, um, and it's about procedure, proper procedure that has to be followed. Um, so, but these aren't really a regular part of the legal legal system, they're complete exceptions that need to be justified in some way or other, and and that's why they are usually found only at the European courts because um, the princes are the only people who are powerful enough to let a criminal off of the regular process of execution to take him out of that that normal and expected process of. Um, the ritual of execution
1: yeah it's really fascinating and uh, uh something that you already touched up a little bit so can you describe how did this give rise to early medical ethics
0: yeah so um this is what i found one of the most fascinating and perplexing aspects of all of this um a mm. series of of the, the, the series had already described that it seemed like there was always needed to be the, the at least the appearance that the prisoner agreed to the test um, and also that this was a test that was a benefit to the public good. And then a third commonality is that most of these prisoners were given, or all of them were given some kind of reward and, and most of them were set free if they survived. Um, the ones who weren't set free were usually extremely violent criminals in some way. And their death sentence was lessened um, or in the Roman cases, they were sent to the galleys, but all of the criminals who survived these poison trials and a lot of them did survive it was surprising. Um, they, they received some sort of reward, but reward, but even if mm. they didn't, this this necessity for um, consent. And then the, you know, the public good, these are the first two points of the Nuremberg articles that were developed um, to guide medical research. So they're this, this very long-standing ideas, and I was really surprised to find them all the way back in the 16th century. Um, so then I was asking, okay, why? <laughs> why do they even have to give consent? It, it seems like the prince can do whatever he wants to a criminal can condemn to die why does why do they have to be seem to give consent and that's where this um file this original file that I read in the archive in Neuenstein um really came to be really helpful in my thinking about this because it describes in great detail um the reasoning why they have to get this criminal to seem like he's agreeing to take the test um, so in this case, it's a, a um, criminal who's been accused of stealing horses. He denies it. He's tortured, and he confesses to many different, different, different aspects of um, stealing horses, and then he's um, condemned to death. And this seems like on the the on the surface, it seems like a very simple, cut and dried case. Then the local prince, Count Wolfgang II of Hohenlohe. Um, happens to have an antidote to poison and wants to use him for this test. And if you dig down a little deeper, however, it looks like um, Count Wolfgang II of Hohenlohe is driving this from the beginning. He really wants to, a criminal to use to test an antidote to poison that he has. He's pushing the issue of torture. He's you know pushing this the whole time, and his advisors are pushing back against him a little bit constantly, saying, oh, "I don't know if he needs to be tortured." And then. Um, once the once the uh, criminal case is resolved, they are they give him a really careful description of what he needs to do to make a poison trial appear acceptable. And the very first thing they say is it's imp- it's crucially important that he appear to do this on his in, out of his own will. So you should have someone separately go to him say that they have heard that the prince has an antidote to poison and suggest he volunteer himself for a test so that the it looks like the prince is not involved at all in even the suggestion of doing this poison trial, that it sounds like it actually comes from the prisoner himself. And the reason that um, they wanted to do this is they are worried about, um, peasants. he specifically says that foolhardy peasants will give all kinds of evil talk or, you know, they will, there'll be unrest among the peasantry. Um, And there were this constant concern about peasant uprisings at this time. It was a thing that happened quite often. So they're worried that, uh, I think they're worried more about what happens if the prisoner lives than what happens if he dies, because if he dies, that's the expected course anyway. He's condemned to death, so he was expected to die. If he lives, um, first of all, he's alive. So if he was mistreated, he can tell people and, and stir unrest that way. Mm. But also um, people might be really displeased to hear about a criminal who has received a death sentence, has done bad enough crimes to receive a death sentence sent back into their midst. So the fact that he is freed is also kind of. Um, something that they're a little worried about. So they have to negotiate these um, problems. And one thing, the one way to do it is to make sure that the um, prisoner is shown to have done this out of his own free will. And it's specifically um, the specific quote from this German source is out of his own free will, without any tricks or force, also without being told to do so. So it's, you know, it's really, it has to come from him, they're saying. Um, and then the other thing that they're emphasizing is that it's for the benefit of all Christendom. It's not just for the prince's benefit. Because the other problem um, with these poison trials is the, there is the danger of the prince himself being seen as a poisoner. And poison was viewed as one of the most scurrilous crimes. So poisoning was viewed as a really scurrilous crime, it was deceitful it was backhanded so unlike you know a fight by combat um which was honorable poison was seen as very dishonorable because you didn't know who was poisoning if, if you poison someone then um they wouldn't know it was you so to have a mm-hmm. prince connected with uh, you don't you don't want as a prince you do not want to be seen as a poisoner because that's a very very negative association and in fact in the middle ages um During a bunch of fights between different warring houses, there were constant um, accusations that the other side was trying to poison them. So people were often using the accusation of poisoning as kind of an insult against people. Uh, So it was really tying princes to poison was something that you did not want. So these princes are trying to show that they are, in fact, not poisoners. (laughs) They're um, doing this. Out, you know out of a uh, beneficent um, motivation they're trying to find new cures for the public and also the prisoner um, consented to it so it's a it's a kind of medical ethics that does not come out of you know the idea of human dignity the idea of justice it's not none of those they're not concerned at all about the very act of giving point giving poison to the the criminal and, and the symptoms that he um afterwards. That, that's not a concern at all. The concern is more of um, interruptions to the religious and social order. So they're worried about it, um, you know, about the interruptions to this ritual of execution. They're worried about the associations between princes and poison. So it's a more um, cultural, religious and political problem than it is a question of dignity and human justice. Nevertheless, they are still thinking carefully about the use of human subjects for medical tests. It is, they're realizing this is not easy. Um, They're wrestling with how to properly use human subjects for medical tests. So it is a kind of very early inkling of something that became medical ethics. Um, The term medical ethics didn't exist until the early 19th century. So this is not, you know, anything close to. And even then it it was not what we think of as medical ethics today. So it certainly was was nothing like modern medical ethics, but it was still careful thought about you know, at least a couple of areas that became central to our our modern medical ethics. So I, I found it really interesting and and complex to think my way through this um, way they're interacting with the the prisoners.
1: Interesting, yes. And exactly as you describe, uh, that it doesn't really have. Much um, uh, similarity to what we would call ethics now, but perhaps in a, in a sense of negotiating the responsibility, it's mm-hmm. a little bit closer to what you understand. Yeah, and it was, I mean, this, this is one
0: strong thing throughout my description of these poison trials <sighs> is an attention to protocol and the idea that the protocol would be the answer that makes this acceptable. And if you have the proper protocol, that's all you need. And I think that's something that really still resonates today, resonates today and that we're still struggling with. You know, what is the proper protocol that we can follow? And obviously, our protocol today is very different than what their protocol would have been at the time. Um, but it, it's nevertheless the same kind of concept that guides you through.
1: Were there, were there any rulers in that time, perhaps called like Richard the Poisoner or something? Um, good question. I don't actually know the answer <laughs> to that.
0: <laughs> Not None of them, because but none of asked. the ones who... Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's I, I, a really interesting question. And, you know, there may have been, but none, none that I've come across. So that would have been yeah, bad. I, know, I, I never, I never
1: thought uh, that um, a Poisoner would, was uh, such an insult, essentially. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, there is a um, there is a fresco in I think it's Padua that's um, by Ambrogio Lorenzetti in, in the 14th century that depicts good government and bad government as sort of a, you know metaphorical fresco and the an allegory and the allegory of bad government the um, evil mm. tyrant is depicting as a devil holding a cup of poison so that's sort of his epitome of the tyrant is is someone who is po- is a poisoner um so yeah it was a pretty strong association at the same time so princes from- were constantly trying to poison each other so that was you know <laughs> it was also <laughs> so, and it was, that was like a point of gossip in a lot of letters at this time too who was you know who was attempted to tempting to poison who so that was a pretty common theme in some of the letters i was reading
1: and from your perspective, uh, can we apply any of the lessons from this history when we think about the ethics around the current technological advances? Uh, so we have to think about uh, some topics like contra- counterfeits, stem cell clinics, unregulated human embryo editing, AI for the purpose of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so, I mean, this was not so much... Uh, technological breakthrough as a theoretical breakthrough in that I, mean, I don't even know if you call it a breakthrough but it was about you know is how you're an expansion of existing ideas in terms of how useful a contrived test is um so one of the main take-home points that I'm trying to get with this book is that this is an early example of using contrived experiments to um to, to, to judge whether a particular drug is useful or not. Um, and, you know, the lessons for today, I think, are more about the questions that we ask. So things like what counts as evidence, who has the authority to make claims about efficacy? I think that's that's a big one that we're still negotiating today. Um, uh, like what, when, when does something mm. work and how can we tell that? And I think for all different kinds of technology that medical technologies today, that question, um, is one that is really applicable from, from my research. Um, and then another one that's really central is what constitutes success. Like, when do you know if it's successful or not? And that's something that was a, a problem at the time. And also I think a problem now, um, And in terms of methodology, that's another thing. So what methods are you supposed to use for for testing? And I think, I mean, this is another theme of my book that I haven't gotten a chance to really talk about, but um, these poison trials were only one small method used to test. as a a real exception in drug testing. Most drugs were evaluated by observing them on sick patients, and that was a far more common um, use of, you know, that's more most common kind of drug testing in which you would describe whether a drug was successful or not on a sick patient, usually it would have to be a drug that was not going You knew that was not harmful. Um, and there was a real debate in how useful these poison trials were in comparison to these sort of tests that you're just doing in the regular course of clinical experience. Um, and some physicians even kind of denigrated poison trials as not that useful. Um, and these, let's see, broader um, slower kind of observational testing being the the main focus um, so I think the question of what counts as proof so you know when can you say have something proved as, as successful is a question they were really wrestling with um, the poison trials were kind of a you know a method of proof that was unusual at the time um, there was a third method that I discussed at the End of the book, which was um, used by some of the alchemists in my book. So I, I didn't circle back to my alchemists yet. But um, but the, one of the last chapters describes an alchemist who came up with a drug that was a poison antidote, but also he thought was good for over a hundred other ailments. And he specifically called it a panacea. He he used that word. Um, mm. And he proved it. His proof of this panacea was by a whole slew of letters from patients who were discussing how wonderfully this um, panacea had worked on them. So he had, so the testimonial letter was his method of proof, which physicians for the most part discounted. So he was definitely not someone who physicians um, viewed as credible. At the same time, physicians were trying to test this, um, antidote to see this panacea, to see if there is actually something useful from it. So they didn't, even though they were kind of denigrating him, they also, at the same time, were trying to see if maybe actually there was something to this. Um, So this is a, so we now today, I think, have a clearer idea of what counts as proof, what counts as evidence, what's acceptable. But I think there's still negotiations we're doing with that. In the time period I'm talking about, it was just open, (laughs) you know, open season, Mm -hmm you know, there are various different um, kinds of medical proof, uh, particularly in talking about remedies. And um, they were really just trying to feel their way through um, what was, you know, what's the best way to prove that a drug works. And one of my other big um, points in the book is that Physicians could never really separate, they're trying throughout this time period to separate themselves from other kinds of pr- practitioners. They, want, they are the most elite and want to be seen as such, but they are so interested in this variety of wonder drugs and you know, marvelous substances that are pouring into 16th century Europe, that they, they can never really separate themselves from other kinds of practitioners because they're all interested in these new substances, and all trying to find the best way to see which things are effective.
1: Yeah, but South, there's a bit of an early inception of skepticism in some of the doctors. Yes. If you... Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No question. Excellent. Well, Alicia, we've taken up a lot of your time. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us what is your next project?
0: Yeah, so I am start, just starting a project on medicine and witchcraft in early modern Europe. Um, this is a topic that's been kind of talked around quite a bit. There's some great articles on the question of whether midwives were more prone to be seeing as witches. Um, but there's not and there's some work on physicians and witchcraft, um, but there's not very much. there's no been real no um, attempt to figure out to what extent uh, witchcraft and particularly witchcraft accusations were tied to medical practice. So were people who practice medicine more prone to be seen as witches? To what extent is um, any kind of medical operations described in witchcraft accusations? And on the elite level, to what extent do medical treatises assume that medicine is connected to witchcraft in any sense? Um, so I, my plan is to do a thorough investigation of this topic. I'd like it to be pan-European. So my expertise is in early modern Germany. But um, I definitely would like to look at England and Scotland, where I think the situation was quite different. And then I, um, I'm also interested in France, because um, that was a primarily Catholic country. So there's a lot of interesting differences there as well. So. Um, that's my initial scope of the project. I might even broaden it out but that's quite a lot to tackle already um, and it's going to take me a really long time because it's a big topic but I'm really excited to, to get working on it.
1: That is super interesting and uh, I'm really hoping that you perhaps uh, consider covering Nordic countries as well because there's some gender differences between uh, witches well, such so yeah, it's really yeah, yeah you're,
0: you're right yeah nordic countries um yes I, if i can figure out the language then if it's not too difficult for me to figure <laughs> out the language then i would definitely like to do uh, nordic countries as well because i think there are some really fascinating differences with um, both the british isles and continental europe so um yeah so you know it, it depends on what i how much i find depends on how broad i make it if there are you know, the the less little bits I can find in each place, the easier it is to broaden it out. But um, but it, it's definitely going to be a project that that's um, going to take me a long time. Um, so I might as well just dive <laughs> in and take on <laughs> make it make it ambitious. So
1: absolutely, and I'm hoping that you will come and talk to us about it.
0: <laughs> yes, if I ever write it, if I ever finish that book, I would. I will definitely
1: come back. So where can our listeners find more information about the book, but also your work?
0: Um, so my website at Tufts is probably the best place to go for my work. Um, if you just go to the Tufts University Department of History page, um, it's easy to find that. And my book's available through the University of Chicago Press, also, also on Amazon. Um, but I would go to the Press page. <laughs> um, and. Yeah, it's probably available many other places as well. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for this insightful discussion. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.